Chapter 8. The Life and Adventures of James P. Beckworth, Mountaineer, Scout, and Pioneer, and Chief of the Crow Nation of Indians. Written from his own dictation by T.D. Bonner. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. I had been in St. Louis only one week when General Ashley came to me and desired me to return to the mountains immediately to carry dispatches to Mr. W. L. Sublet, captain of the trappers, and offering me the magnificent sum of $1,000 for the trip. I consented to go. LaRoche and Pello were to accompany me. A journey to the mountains was then called 2,000 miles through a country considered dangerous even for an army. I left St. Louis this time with extreme reluctance. It is a severe trial to leave one's friends, but the grief of separating from father and all other relatives sank into insignificance when contrasted with the misery of separating from one in particular, one in whom all my affections were reposed and upon whom all my hopes of the future were concentrated. The contemplation of the anguish I was about to inflict by the announcement filled my heart with sorrow. One week more, and the happy event that would make one of two loving hearts would have been consummated. The general's business was urgent and admitted of no delay. After I had engaged, not a day, scarcely an hour was to be lost. The thousand dollars I was to receive looked large in my eyes, and that, added to what I already possessed, would the better prepare me for a matrimonial voyage. I comforted myself with the reflection that my services were confined to the mere delivering of the dispatches. That service performed, I was free to return immediately. I bid my aged father farewell. It was the last time I saw him. To my other friends, I said cheerfully, Au revoir! expecting to return to them shortly. But my greatest conflict was to come. I had encountered perils, privation, and faced death itself. I had fought savages in the wild beasts of the mountains, but to approach this tender heart that had been affiance to my own for years unmanned me. That heart that was then so light, so buoyant with hope, so full of confidence in the future, that I must plunge in utter darkness by the intelligence that in a few short hours I must leave her. Could I have communicated it to her by fighting a score of Indians? How much my pain would have been mitigated! But time was urgent, and the sacred obligation to the lady must be performed. I called on my sweetheart. She looked more lovely than ever. She remarked my troubled looks. James, she said, you look saddened. What is the matter? Are you unwell? No, Eliza, I am well, but... But what, James? What has happened? Speak! Knowing that I had no time for delay, I felt it my duty to break the news to her at once. My dear girl, I said, I have loved you long and ardently. I have waited to see if the affection which you shared with me in childhood would stand the proof of maturer years. We are now both matured in years and are capable of judging our own hearts. 
through all my sufferings and dangers. My devotion to you has grown with my growth and strengthened with my strength. We have decided on the day for our indissoluble union. But Eliza, I am yet young. My means of supporting you as I could wish are inadequate. I have just received a very tempting offer from General Ashley. What to do, James? He offers me $1,000 to carry dispatches to the mountains, which admits of my immediate return. And are you going? That is what I have come to inform you, Eliza. Understand my motive. It is solely to obtain the means to enable us to start the fairer in life. I care not for money, James, she said, bursting into a flood of tears. My heart sought relief from its overcharged feeling in the same way. I left her amid her sobs, promising to make a speedy return, and that we would part no more till death should separate us. The general had furnished us with two good saddle horses each, and one stout mule to carry our bedding. We mounted and, leaving St. Louis, were soon some miles on our journey. We proceeded up the Missouri River, left the last white settlement, and issued out into the wilderness. We proceeded with the utmost caution, always halting before dark. We built a fire and ate our supper, then moving on farther to a secure camping place. We lit no fire to avoid attracting the Indians to us. On arriving at the forks of the Platte, we held a council and resolved to follow up the north branch to its source, thence cross over to Green River, thus striking it much higher up than we had ever been on that stream before. We proceeded accordingly, crossed Green River, and held our course to the head of Salt River. Here we found a party belonging to the General's company. Winter was now beginning to set in, and it was time for the whole company to go into winter quarters. As nearly as I can recollect, this was the end of October 1823. A place of rendezvous had been previously agreed upon, and as it was certain that the various parties would soon assemble, I concluded to proceed to the rendezvous and wait the arrival of Sublet for the delivery of my dispatches, rather than undertake a search for him in the mountain wilderness. I and my companions, therefore, continued with the party until we reached the rendezvous. The parties, one after the other, came slowly in, and Sublitz was the last to arrive. It was now too late for me to return, and I had no alternative but to wait until spring. Our present rendezvous was in Cachet Valley, but Sublet gave orders for all to remove to Salt Lake which was but a few miles distant, and then go into winter quarters. We accordingly moved to the mouth of Weaver's Fork and established ourselves there. When all were collected together for the winter, our community numbered from six to seven hundred souls, from two to three hundred consisting of women and children, all strong and healthy as bears and all having experienced very good success. Shortly after we had become well settled down, we had the misfortune to lose about 80 horses. 
stolen one dark, stormy night by the Punaks, a tribe inhabiting the headwaters of the Columbia River. On missing them the next day, we formed a party of about 40 men and followed their trail on foot. The ground was covered with snow at the time. I volunteered with the rest, although fortunately, my horses were not among the missing. After a pursuit of five days, we arrived at one of their villages, where we saw our own horses among a number of others. We then divided our forces, Fitzpatrick taking command of one party and a James Bridger of the other. The plan resolved upon was as follows. Fitzpatrick was to charge the Indians and cover Bridger's party while they stampeded all the horses they could get away with. I formed one of Captain Bridger's party, this being the first affair of the kind I had ever witnessed. Everything being in readiness, we rushed in upon the horses and stampeded from two to three hundred. Fitzpatrick at the same time engaging the Indians, who numbered from three to four hundred. The Indians recovered a great number of the horses from us, but we succeeded in getting off with the number of our own missing, and forty head besides. In the engagement, six of the enemy were killed and scalped, while not one of our party received a scratch. The horses we had captured were very fine ones, and our return to the camp was greeted with the liveliest demonstrations. We found, on return from the above marauding expedition, an encampment of Snake Indians, to the number of 600 lodges, comprising about 2,500 warriors. They had entirely surrounded us with their encampments, adding very materially to our present population. They were perfectly friendly, and we apprehended no danger from their proximity. It appears this was their usual resort for spending the winter, and, after pitching their lodges, which are composed of skins, they proceeded to build a large medicine lodge. The word medicine, or as they call it, barchk parchk, signifies a prophet or dreamer, and is synonymous with the word prophet as employed in the Old Testament. The Indian form of government is a theocracy, and the medicine man is the high priest. His dreams or prophecies are sacred. If his predictions are not verified in the result, the fault is with themselves. They had disregarded some of his instructions. When by accident his dreams are exactly verified, their confidence in their prophet exceeds all belief. The Medicine Lodge is the tabernacle of the wilderness, the habitation of the Great Spirit, the sacred ark of their faith. Our long residence with the Snake Tribe afforded us an excellent opportunity of acquainting ourselves with the domestic character of the Indians. They often invited us into their Medicine Lodge to witness their religious ceremonies and listen to their prophesyings. The name of the old prophet was Omogua, which in English means woman's dress. One evening, he delivered a prophecy for us. I can see, said he, white people on Big Shell, the Platte River. I see them boring a hole in a red bucket. I see them drawing out medicine water, whiskey. I see them fighting each other, but fate, sublet, has gone down on the other side of the river. He does not see them. 
He has gone to the White Lodges. Where are you going? We are going, answered Fitzpatrick, to trap on Bear Head and the other small streams in the country of the Blackfeet. No, said the prophet. You will go to Sheep Mountain. There you will find the snow so deep that you cannot pass. You will then go down Port Neef to Snake River. If you are fortunate, you will discover the Blackfeet before they see you, and you will beat them. If they discover you first, they will rub you all out, kill you all. Bad hand, Fitzpatrick. I tell you there is blood in your path this grass. If you beat the Blackfeet, you will retrace your steps and go to Bear River, whose water you will follow until you come to Sage River. There you will meet two white men who will give you news. To return to my narrative, Mr. Sublet, having left the camp in company with my old companion, Mr. Harris, before we returned, had left a letter of instructions for Fitzpatrick, desiring him to remove our camp as early in the spring as possible back to Cache Valley and to repair to Weaver's Lake, where he would rejoin him. Sublet and Harris had parted for St. Louis, which they reached in safety after a journey in midwinter. We spent the winter very comfortably, and at the opening of spring we all moved, whites and Indians, back to Cache Valley. Soon after we arrived, we commenced digging caches to secure 75 packs of beaver skins in the possession of our party. While digging a cache in the bank, the earth caved in, killing two of our party who were Canadians. The Indians claimed the privilege of burying them, which ceremony they performed by hoisting them up in trees. This has ever been the method of disposing of the dead with most, if not all, of the Rocky Mountain tribes. The body is securely wrapped in blankets and robes, fastened with thongs, in which are enclosed the war implements, pipes, and tobacco of the deceased. If he had been a warrior, his war horse is killed and buried, together with his saddle and other implements, at the foot of the same tree. One more accident occurred, which at first occasioned us considerable alarm. Before we quitted Cache Valley on our excursion, one of our men was out hunting, and coming across an antelope, as he supposed, fired at the animal's head and killed it. On going to cut the animal's throat, to his surprise, he found he had killed one of the snake Indians, who had put on this disguise to decoy the antelopes near him. This was an accident that we deeply lamented, as the snakes were very friendly toward us. Before the Indians discovered the accident, we held a council and resolved to make a precipitate retreat, as we felt very distrustful of the consequences. While we were preparing to start, the chief came among us and was greatly surprised at our sudden departure, especially as we had given him no previous notice. We excused ourselves by saying we were going to engage in hunting and trapping. He then asked what ailed us, saying we all looked terrified and wished to know what happened. Fitzpatrick at length told him what had taken place and how it came to pass. Oh, said the chief, if that is what you are alarmed at, take off your packs and stay. 
The Indian was a fool to use a decoy when he knew the antelope came into the sage every day and that the white men shoot all they see. He then made a speech to his warriors, telling them what had happened, and ordered some of his men to bring in the dead Indian. Then turning to us, he said, You and the snakes are brothers. We are all friends. We cannot at all times guard against accident. You lost two of your warriors in the bank. The snakes have just lost one. Give me some red cloth to wrap up the body. We will bury the fallen brave. We gave the chief a scarlet blanket, as he had desired, and all was well again. End of chapter 8